You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Welcome to the Land and Legacy Podcast. We're your hosts, Adam Keith and Matt Dye. This is your number one resource for all things land. If you're interested in conservation, habitat management, hunting strategy, and rural real estate, this is the podcast for you. All right, guys, welcome back to Land and Legacy Podcast. It's going to be a fun one this week. I'm going to jump into some research, going to hear some stuff that uh, is very exciting, but also could be mind-blowing for some, maybe not for others, um, but really interesting stuff. So you're going to definitely uh, maybe want to get the notepad out to follow along and write some notes here because it may change your hunting strategy this fall. Matt, you're you're I there. Think, yeah, I'm here, I th- and I think knowing where this conversation is going to lead to, I think everyone... Um, I, I love it when research really just goes into the detail that, that we describe um, and, and it really just it confirms a lot of the discussions that we have on a weekly basis, um, whether it is revolving around food plots or revolving around deer movement and given habitat types or vegetation types. It's it's awesome. And so that's what this week is, is going to be all about. We have a special guest and um they're extremely knowledgeable and they're going to bring the heat when it comes to understanding wildlife movements on a, on a landscape that is managed intensely. And I think that like that question people always ask is like, so like when I, when I manipulate the the landscape and the plant communities here, what's going to happen? Well, you're about to find out. And that's awesome. And we're happy to have them on the podcast. Yeah, for sure. So, how about we just introduce him and let him uh, tell a little, little bit about his current job, what he does, and um, and then we'll lead right into the podcast. So, Dr. Will Goolsby. I got that right, right? That's it. Man. Yeah, I appreciate you guys. I appreciate you guys having me on, and that's, uh, you know, quite the introduction for me to live up to. <laughs> <laughs> better bring the heat. 
but I'll do my best. It's perfectly acceptable to preach on the podcast. We've been accused of that in the past. So, you know, step right up to the plate. All right. I'll do my best. Yeah. So uh, my name is Will Goolsby. I'm a wildlife professor at Auburn University. I've been here since 2016. Um, So right around five, we're between five and six years now. Um, My specialty here is primarily focusing on forest management for wildlife. Um, So a lot of that definitely focuses on deer and turkeys, but I've even ventured some into the non-game realm if it involves, you know, timber management and fire is probably something that I'm interested in being involved in. Um, My background, uh, as far as my graduate work goes, uh, I did that at the University of Georgia with Dr. Carl Miller. Um, and for those of you who are familiar with Dr. Miller, it's a safe bet that um, it was a deer research project. And in fact, it was. Um, so that's kind of where my background is, specifically looking um, for my graduate work during my Ph.D. I looked at uh, the effects of coyote predation on fawns, um, but have always had a strong interest in habitat management. Um, helped Dr. Miller TA that ma- habitat management course at UGA and then, of course, teach it at Auburn now, um, as well as, you know, some field management uh, techniques type classes. And, um, you know, I found my way to this field by first and foremost, starting out as a deer hunter. And, um, you know, when I got done with my undergraduate degree, kind of trying to decide where I wanted to go, I loved hunting. I'd gotten my hands on um, access to a little bit of property where the landowners were gracious enough to let me kind of dink around and try to stumble my way through doing things like opening some canopy here and there, planting my first food plots. And I just absolutely fell in love with it, wanted to make a career out of it and um, realized that there was a real um, gap and a need for wildlife professors, wildlife researchers that study that type of thing. And so, um, you know, I haven't looked back ever since I stepped into it. Oh, that's awesome. I think one of the things you hit it right, right there, nail on the head at the end for me, I think one of the biggest gaps that's, that's now hopefully starting to be filled is for a long time there was research, but it was, there wasn't a whole lot of in-depth take that research, apply it to the field easily you can digest it easy and then apply it to your own farm. And what you guys are putting out, like you're doing a lot of great stuff on social media. Matt and I follow along there, and I think that's what originated this this idea yeah. to have you on the podcast. Because it's one thing to just read a paper and be like, oh, that yeah, that's, that's cool research that they found. It's another to be, oh, if I cut or I burn or a combination, I'm going to improve my farm this amount or I could increase this amount of forage from a native standpoint. And that's where I think that's just what Matt and I are obsessed with is taking really great research, applying it and uh, restoring properties to where people are enjoying it and having more wildlife than they ever, than they've had the last 30 years because now they get it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's one of the things that I love to do. And you brought up a great point, um, you know, is, as wildlife students or, you know, either for in a formal or informal capacity, whether you're a wildlife student in a university program or you're just, you know, a donor that's a wildlife student that follows these social media pages or reads, you know, all these articles about habitat management that you can get your hands on. Um, there's a lot of things that we take for granted. You know, there's we know that typically when you go from a closed canopy situation to a more open canopy situation, you can, you know, increase the amount of deer forage on the ground or turkey brooding or nesting cover on the ground. But surprisingly to me, when I first, you know, ventured into this career path in this research field, 
there was a lot of that stuff that no one had really put numbers on. Mm-hmm. You know, we we knew it happened. Um, we knew we knew, you know, the general response, but we didn't know the extent of it. And I think the more of that information that we can get out there, the better landowners will be equipped and managers will be equipped to understand what the realistic expectations of any habitat management action they implement uh, should be. You know, what is the extent of the response that we're going to we're going to observe in response to this treatment or that one? Awesome. It, it, It provides just true value. That that is quantitative that people can say, oh, I get it. It's not just, mm-hmm. hey, it'll get it'll get better or it will be improved. We hear and say that so often, but it's yeah. always important to say, but by this much, exponentially right. better. And now there's these numbers to apply. And this is, I think, I don't mean to get off on a little tangent, but the there always seems to be a disconnect among the a, a landowner and sometimes, let's say, researchers that, Oh, they're just, you know, they're in these controlled situations and all this and that. You guys are out there cutting, you're burning, like you were just burning a couple of days ago. That's right. In the field, you're the you're also the one who is applying the science and the manipulation and and the variables into these uh, experiments and studies. It this is not just some guy coming on. This is a real life hands-on hunter land manager as well as professor so it it's just important i think for everyone listening to paint the picture of you know you're not just let's say standing behind a podium three days a week teaching a class you're you're applying right this is well. thank thank god i am <laughs> yeah. i am getting yeah. the chance to apply it because that's why i got into this but yeah i've i've found that you know no other experience outside of Getting out there, implementing something like prescribed fire and seeing the realities of, of when you can implement it, how it responds, how the plants respond and um, being able to take that back into the classroom or onto a podcast or on my social media. Nothing is as valuable as doing it firsthand. Yeah. And uh, it makes me more well-rounded and, and better able to speak to it because, you know, if you just if you just learn about the practices, you never implement them. You don't learn about all the nuance related to, okay, well, let's say, for example, I herbicided these, you know, large trees last year. They were low value wildlife species. I wanted to allow my oaks in that stand to expand their canopies, get a little bit more sunlight on the ground. But then I go back and burn it and I realize that, oh, well, some of these, you know, snags end up being hazards uh, to fall (laughs) over the fire. But just simple stuff like that, that if you learn it in a book, you never think about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's real life practical application that you have to know those things before right. you just willy nilly go and say, oh, I'm going to open up the canopy by 30 percent and yield this response. Yeah. Yeah, there, there's more to it than that. Right. And I mean, sometimes even when we're trying to get our timber treatment implemented, you know, figuring out, OK, well, can we get a logging crew in here? Or, you know, maybe it's inoperable because of steep slope. Maybe it's too wet. Maybe it's too small for them to be interested in the sale. And so then we have to look to alternative methods of trying to achieve our objectives. Just little things like that that you pick up through experience along the way are super, super valuable. Yeah. Absolutely. One thing that I'm really, that in the last few years, I feel like has started to, there's a, a shift that's starting to occur. And I think for a long time, the as much as I almost cringe to say this, the hunting industry has influenced land management practices and the things that people do for wildlife. And a lot of that involves product sales. 
Now, right. I'm seeing where more people, and it seems like more and more each each uh, management season, dormant season when it's not hunting season, are starting to key in on research information and are listening to podcasts, mm-hmm. listen, l- reading social media posts, sharing it on social media, and all of a sudden you're seeing guys doing more stuff that's research-based. They're, they're trying yeah. to implement fire. They're trying to thin their force or remove invasives and it's like oh finally it only took us 30 years i'm just glad we got here though right i mean i think that for all its faults one thing that has been really beneficial in the era of social media is it's kind of broken down that wall if you will between the manager and the ivory tower of academia even though i don't think (laughs) you know being in the ivory tower but you know it's given us that that direct uh, communication and contact. And, you know, I post things and have managers comment and, um, you know, send me direct messages and things. And I, I reply back to every one of them that I can or every one of them that I see. Um, so, you know, having that direct line of communication and also, you know, it's valuable for me to hear back from them and hear how their experiences varied from mine. Yeah. Oh, well, that That's was right. going to be my next question. How many times do they send you a direct message or a phone call and they're like, you know, that's an interesting take. I'm not sure I agree with that. And you guys have to kind of duke it out a little bit and say, no, this is where, oh, okay, yeah, now we're back on the same page. I, I get what you're doing. Yeah, I don't know that it's always going to be this way, but for the most part, I, I think those conversations are uh, predominantly productive ones. And, yeah. you know, some people every now and then will say, well, you know, I think you're wrong about this or that. You know, when I when I make posts about uh, predators and predation on game species, those tend to be, a little bit more controversial than <laughs> than the habitat management, the fire stuff, and understandably so. That's a hot button topic for a lot of people. Oh, no doubt. When you mentioned yeah, it thanks. earlier that you're uh, that you worked with Carl Miller, I was like, he mentioned coyotes less than ten minutes in this podcast, and it might just derail from that one statement. <laughs> <laughs> well. I'll I'll try to keep that from happening unless you guys want to get into it. <laughs> well, I would love time. to because that's another, you know, we'll probably have to have you back on because we've got so much other stuff we want to talk about today. Yeah. Um, we talk about coyotes later. But um, let's just go ahead and start jumping in some of the research. Now, you've covered a lot yeah. of things recently that, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, I don't know which one to pick, but there's certainly one that um, we talked about pre-show that we want to highlight on this podcast. So, uh, yeah. Matt, do you want to? Is there anything you wanted to highlight before we just had him jump right into it? No, I, I just think that uh, we'll, we'll turn it right over to Will and and let him roll with some of the research we've talked about um, in previous conversations, and that will just will just provide that extra commentary to drill home the the awesome yeah. points that this research makes. So, so Will, have at it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, one of the first studies that I wanted to talk about, uh, we referenced or alluded to a little bit earlier is, um, involving, you know, actually quantifying vegetation responses to different levels of thinning. Um, generally we've understood for a long time that if you take a forested area and you cut some of the trees out of it, the way that I like to think about it, and maybe it's, maybe it's overly scientific, but you as a, as a manager, choose where you want in a forested area or really any area you choose where you want to allocate the greatest biomass of vegetation right in a closed canopy forest you know that that predominant biomass the leafy the green material is outside of a deer's reach or a turkey's reach when we take some of that 
canopy biomass away, we reallocate, you know, that biomass to the ground, to a ground level where it's providing cover and forage. So we've generally understood for a long time that that's the case, but um, we initiated this one project a few years ago now. We're about to, to conclude it and get some of the final results, but um, we took loblolly pine stands, um, you know, in these plantations where you can, you know, get a pretty consistent basal area. You know, that's typically how we're, we're measuring basal area because it correlates with sunlight. And as you decrease basal area, sunlight to the ground is going to generally increase. Um, and that's the terms that foresters are measuring the stands in, and we're having to work with foresters to get these stands. And so it, it works out. Um, but we wanted to thin these pine stands to um, different levels and actually quantify how much vegetation response, particularly in terms of deer forage, we get by thinning to those different levels. We're also interested in how deer used those areas as well, because, you know, it's, it's valuable information, of course, to know how much forage the stands are producing. But it's also interesting to see how many uh, or, or what to what extent deer are using these areas as well, especially from a hunting perspective. Um, so, so as a hunter, that's something I'm very interested in. So to give more specifics, we um, we thinned these were unthinned loblolly pine stands. And we thinned um, in each replicate a subset of those stands down to about 80 square feet per acre basal area and then another third down to 60 square feet uh, per acre of basal area. And then finally, we went down to 40 square feet per acre of basal area. And to provide a little bit of context um, on that, for those of you who may not be familiar with what that looks like, an 80 basal area is going to be pretty typical for a first thin and a pine stand that um, is managed by, let's say, a, um, a timber company that's trying to produce as much volume as they can to keep that stand optimally stocked. There's some sunlight on the ground when you thin down to 80, but not a ton. And then when we go down to 60, that's where you're starting to look at, you know, wildlife objectives being more of a priority because you're sacrificing some of that timber to get more sunlight on the ground. And then finally, when you go down to 40, you're looking at a situation where, um, you know, you might be trying to manage for native quail. That's a really low basal area and a lot of sunlight on the ground. So you guys follow me so far? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I think for our listeners, and you can – agree or disagree on this will but i would say that for our listeners we're talking when you're at that you said 30 basal area on the third one so more of the like yeah. pine savanna picture right. a massive right. amount of sunlight and then the 60 being more of the woodland so probably yes. more of a woody ba- uh woody um regen. regrowth regen some brambles not quite as herbaceous yep. and then the other yep. one just being the general thinning what do you think 20 30 percent or less uh, canopy opened up in that 80% basal area for you guys? or That's about right. Okay, so yeah. a little bit of sunlight, probably still seeing pine needles and not a lot of not a lot of growth in real shady spots, but still some, some yeah. stuff growing scattered around. Yeah, I mean, you know, you would, it would be, um, it would be kind of unevenly, the forage would be unevenly distributed in that stand with more forage in the rows that they took out. Because yep. that's probably going to be like a, fit, a fifth row thinning, taking out every fifth row. So you'd see more forage in those take rows. Yeah. And then you'd get back to more just the pine needle, woody vegetation situation in the leave rows. There you go. Perfect. Yep. We're tracking. Yeah. So um, just starting out with the forage, you know, one thing that was really interesting to me, I did not expect. And like I said, um, we've got, there's a graduate student, Dylan Stewart, who's in the field right now finishing up that project. Um, so these results may change somewhat, 
But um, during the first three years that we sampled under those stands, as expected, we saw a huge increase in deer forage when you cut from 80 square feet per acre down to 60. Um, so we're talking about like a increase in forb coverage of like 10 to 15 percent, mm. um, which if you think about, you know, going from 10 percent forb coverage to 20 to 25 percent forb coverage, that's a lot more deer food. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So um, not surprised necessarily there, but, you know, I expected to see a further increase in deer forage response when you went from 60 down to 40, even though we don't typically cut that low for deer. Um, you know, I, I would consider more sunlight having a positive effect on forage and we just really haven't documented that yet. Did, um, are you finding more grass? We are finding more grass for sure. Uh-huh. And so I think you bring up an important, important point there is that, you know, forbs are a little bit less sunlight hungry than grasses are. Yeah. Um, and in most of these studies where we monitor stands over time, especially, you know, like a young planted stand, it can be pine, it can be hardwood, whatever. Um, not long after site prep and planting, you know, you have a lot of herbaceous vegetation out there. And then what's the first, what's the first growth form that you lose? Grass. Grass. Yeah. Yep. And then Forbes yep. and then Woody is usually the last to go. Yep. Um, so, you know, we saw that huge or what I consider a huge increase in, in especially Forb coverage going down from 80 to 60, but it didn't really continue to increase into the 40. Now, one other caveat that I want to put on that too, though, is that, you know, the, if you're looking at not making a, another entry into those stands, in other words, you're not looking at thinning those stands again before, you know, they have a final harvest. If you're going to implement a final harvest, that 60 square foot per acre stand is going to start closing canopy sooner than before. Yeah. 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 So that's an important point to consider. And I think that's another thing to, to consider for those um, listening is, is you saw that increase in Forb, composition but then as you went to 40 you saw grasses take more composition as well out of the plant communities and and therefore there is also a change in the cover type in each one of those stands as well and and the vertical Mm -hmm. structure that would be present for different species so yeah when when we work with landowners this is why we're so uh uh, i guess try to be diligent and, and dial people into what are your goals who are you trying to make the habitat for? Because mm-hmm. we could go and thin some to, you know, majority to 60 and then stagger out some at 40 for more long-term effect as, as the canopy closes in, you know, yeah. it just is all so dependent upon what that goal is. So you have to have that, that constant, um, who are we trying to, you know, create the habitat for? Yeah, absolutely. And then furthermore, you know, I'll, I always tell my students, you know, I'll ask them a question like, let's just put it simple. Is this good or bad deer habitat? And it always depends because what is good habitat for deer during one season may not be good deer habitat in another season. So you not only have to consider species specific requirements, but also seasonal requirements for that species. And so, you know, with deer, we want to focus on relatively high sunlight environments that have protein rich forbs during the summertime. And then, you know, as they move into fall, they're focusing more on, you know, um, acquiring, you know, fats and carbohydrates for energy and to put on body fat for the rigors of the rut and things like that. 
Um, so, you know, we're going to have different areas that are managed a little bit differently to meet those, those different needs. When you, when you had the 30% basal area, did you notice a, a larger decrease in woody, uh, woody vegetation, woody region versus the 60 or 80? Well, you know, one of the things in these in these types of stands, these lava-like pine stands, um, and I don't know how many of your listeners are familiar with with lava-like pine. A but, lot. Uh, yeah. You know, we always we always get uh, a huge flush of sweet gum yeah. within these stands. Yeah. And um, I would say that I don't. I'd have to go back and look at the numbers, but we saw that in both the sixty and the forty. Um, now what separated those stands out longer term and in, in part of the study that I hadn't gotten into yet is that we burned half of each um, basal area treatment and we left the other half unburned. Mm-hmm. And that's where we begin to shape, you know, the, what I would always tell people is that the, the canopy manipulation and the sunlight that comes along with it gives us the, the biotic potential, the ability to grow the plants on the ground what we do after that, as far as herbicide or disturbance, whether that be with fire or something else, dictates what that's going to be comprised of. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I was going to play a scenario in my head, just trying to say in a in a in an ideal world, well, I'm saying I'm a landowner managing for white-tailed deer, and I have a loblolly stand like you just stated, and we can mm-hmm. we got a logging crew sit, parked at the gate. What is the goal, and I'm I'm setting myself up here for the answer that I give the most, but it depends, (laughs) Um, but let's just say I'm kind of, I'm shooting for that that 80, 60, or 40 uh, for a majority of it. What what would you tend to go towards? I tend to lean towards the 60. Okay. um, Because rarely do you ever encounter a private landowner that isn't at least somewhat concerned with maintaining maintaining some timber volume for future revenue. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I feel. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I'm 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 really kind of antsy because I'm like this is perfect. This is kind of what I was saying or or in my head was thinking. But go on. Okay. Yeah. So rarely is timber revenue um, not an objective at all. So cutting down to 60, I feel like still allows them to maintain, you know, uh, a decent amount of volume for future revenue. And, you know, like I said, at least during these first few years post thinning that we've documented so far, there doesn't seem to be a huge benefit. If the goal is primarily to produce deer forage um, and even deer cover, there's not going to be a huge benefit to in, from our data so far and taking it down further than that. Now, the only situation, you know, like I talked about earlier, the only situation where I consider going down further is if you want to prevent having to thin that stand back down again. Well, that was my question and my head was going, okay, if I'm a landowner and I'm always trying to manage as a business, so I'm trying to make income if possible. We mentioned that a 60 would close back up quicker than the 40. So in an ideal world, and I say ideal because getting a logger there in our head is one thing, but actually getting them there is another. Uh, If I cut it to a 60, I just know that I'll probably have to thin much quicker um, and make more income. Also adding that disturbance back, probably getting a more more flush of Forbes. Um, So in my head, uh, that's what I was thinking is, I would shoot for the 60, try to get a logging crew in there, 
more closer together, more uh, less years apart, um, and yeah. manage for deer that way. Is that pretty accurate? Is that kind of what you I were think thinking? That's, yeah, I think that's a fair <laughs> statement. Um, but another thing to consider too is a lot of times in my experience, when a landowner thins down to sixty you know, their next entry into that stand is probably in Loblaw Pine is probably going to be to, to clear cut it. Yeah. Um, So they may not be as, you know, by the time it really starts to close back up and limit deer forage again, they're probably clear cutting and restarting that stand over, which of course, when you clear cut, it's going to give a flush of vegetation too. No doubt. That's another thing to consider. But if they're, if they are thinking longer term or they implement that, that thin down to 60 earlier in the rotation, then I think that point that point you just made does have some you know credence to it. Okay. Now let's let's throw in the the landowner who uh, Matt is, before you go into another scenario, and I, I want to mention too, I'd burn it. I'm sorry, what was that? I, I would burn. I would still be burning. I didn't even mention burn, and I'm sure there's guys that were listening. It's like he didn't even mention fire on his management of that. <laughs> And yeah. I, I felt like that was a given, but I do want to say that, <laughs> Matt. Now you can go. Yeah. So now, now let's throw into um, the scenario: uh, a landowner has an emphasis on uh, a, a balance of, of quality habitat for wild turkeys as well as mm-hmm. deer. Now, right. how do you play out the situation, knowing that you're going to get a different plant response and will be following up with prescribed fire and 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 across the whole property? What what kind of percentages may you? reference or recommend for that landowner with those goals right so you know i still think thinning down to 60 is a good balance in that scenario but if i have an a landowner who is really interested in providing you know increasing the amount of brooding cover um on you know in his upland ponds or in only just portions of his upland ponds you know maybe he wants to thin um, maybe he wants to thin 75% of his upland pines down to 60 and then the remaining 25, he's going to put in patches that are thinned down to 40 to, you know, distribute brooding cover, um, yeah. across yep. that acreage, you know, that would be, that would be feasible, but going down to that 40 again is going to allow that grassy component to come in, um, and, you know, provide some quality brooding cover. You're probably going to burn those areas a little bit more often than you would if you were just trying to provide deer forage or uh nesting cover for turkeys and um and i you know it would better suit that objective to an extent but you know one thing still i think to keep in mind is that even for turkey brooding cover you know we're trying to allow the hen to see while providing some visual obstruction for her definitely want to provide visual obstruction in other words cover from predators for the pults especially from aerial predators um, but we're also trying to attract protein rich insects yep. and nothing does that as good as Forbes, as good as native Forbes do. So, you know, we might want a little bit more grassy component for the cover that it provides, but that focus in my mind should still be on Forbes. Right. And I think that the, I'm glad you went that direction because <clears throat> the, um, oh gosh, there's, there's just so there's not a, enough, I think, support in discussion of the value that Forbes have for just most wildlife species. Like we're talking quail, we're talking turkeys, we're talking deer. All of them need a high composition of Forbes. And I think people just almost get goo-goo-eyed of of the structure 
that a grass or a bunch grass right. is going to have. And yeah. it, it, it is, it's good, but it yep. has to be in balance with the percentage of forbs on the landscape as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we want some grass, but we don't want grass to the exclusion of forbs. And, um, you know, the rule of the rule of thumb that I usually follow is that in stands that I'm, ma- I'm managing for early succession for wildlife, that's a very broad term. But yeah. generally speaking, you know, wildlife that require uh, frequent disturbance through fire, typically, unless you're looking at, you know, a really strong grassland species like a Bachman sparrow or something like that, they don't require more than 30 to 50 percent grass coverage. So if we get north of that. You know, especially when we're talking about deer and turkeys, it starts to lose some of its value. Yeah. Sure. And, and, we're, and that's what we're talking about, trying to maximize property. We're right. not trying just to make it better. We're trying to maximize it. And, and so right. we need to be, let's say, nitpicky and, and evaluate with a critical eye and say, really, how much grass do I need? Or, or, or man, I've got too much. I need to... I need mm-hmm. to intervene here and either use herbicide or a dormant season disking or change my fire regime yep. to make this stand and what comprises it better for my group. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, that's an important thing to, to point out. I'm sure you guys do it all the time. Um, but a lot of these recommendations that we're throwing out as far as fire frequency and things like that are, are highly site dependent. Yeah. Um, you know, I've seen I've seen one site that if you burn it every year, you don't even have enough cover at ground level to conceal a quail chick, you know, on yeah. some of these poor like sandy soils. Whereas I've seen other sites in like the black belt of Alabama with really rich soils, they burn them every year. It looks like a two year burn rotation almost anywhere else because the vegetation sure. responds so quickly. Wow. So, yeah, these are rule of thumbs. And um, speaking directly back to that that grass potential grass issue um if an area has been burned you know regularly on let's say a two to three year return for several rotations and grass starts to be a problem the first thing that i typically look at is trying to um apply at least one or two rotations of fire in that area during the growing season to try to uh, knock that back down a little bit mm-hmm. um and specifically like if you can get into the late growing season and burn and say September, October, you know, burn days are fewer and further between there. Um, but that does, those two fires do help uh, cut down a little bit on that grass coverage and while promoting Forbes. Certainly. Certainly. A question for you. Um, and I promise I'll get to the point, but I'm curious. Did you grow up in the South? I did. So when you were uh, a younger man, a, a boy growing up, how was the, it seems to me, I'll just, I'll just get to the point. It seems like pine plantations or pine plantings where it was a you know a, t- a timber company owned it it seemed like they controlled um woody vegetation and uh they just managed it with fire yeah and it seems like now they manage it more with a herbicide um right. and so it seems like the plant composition has changed where it's like broom sedge and sweet gum and mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot of other uh, forbs or brambles that are really beneficial, the native variety that are commonly found in those now that it seems like there's a heavy herbicide base in that. Have you, am, am I totally making a, a wrong assumption or have you noticed no, that? I, yeah, I think that's spot on. And um, from the conversations that I've had, 
much of that is driven solely by liability associated with burning. Yeah. Um, especially as you have, as you have, and I, I'm going to quickly reach the, the limits of my knowledge on this, but, um, broadly my, my perception is that a lot of the timberlands have, um, as far as industrial timberlands, not talking about non-industrial private timberlands, um, the ownership of that has switched over from smaller, uh, smaller companies to, you know, larger corporations. Yeah. And, you know, anytime you become a, a larger entity, a large corporation, um, you're going to want to limit liability more and more. Yeah. And so, you know, they're just trying to minimize the risk that's associated with fire. And I'll just kind of throw this out, out here because you guys, um, you guys said, feel free to preach. But, you know, we'll follow up a lot with of, the amen. <laughs> what a lot of folks who haven't implemented, you know, prescribed fire or have done it to only a limited extent don't realize is the biggest liability associated with fire is not the flame, it's the smoke. Yep, right. Um, That's right. And and so, you know, these these companies are particularly concerned about putting smoke on um, any smoke. We generally describe them as smoke sensitive areas. So it could be anything from a school to a house to a hospital. Um, but the most common smoke sensitive area that really causes legal problems is roads and particularly highways and causing accidents. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that that's part of the reason why you're seeing that probably the main reason why you're seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's unfortunate because we know how beneficial it is, but then again, you can understand the liability, um, issues that, that arise from that. So I don't know how we tackle it, but it certainly seems like now when I go down south to consult, it's like there's room sedge and sweet gums, and there's not a whole lot of other stuff right. unless there's been fire. Yeah, High value forbs are, are man, you see them in just low frequencies even after these disturbances. It's like, gosh, you feel like there should be – you're unveiling something yeah. more beneficial, but it's just – it's, it's just been depleted. And, from, right. from and I can only sneak so much common ragweed seed in my pockets to spill out while I'm there. <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one thing I do want to, I do want to um, give a hat tip right now to Weyerhaeuser because um, a couple of our stands are on their lands that are part of the study and they've been, they've been critical in helping, you know, fund the study too. a portion of it. Um, significant, the significant remainder is funded by Alabama department of conservation, and natural resources and the Georgia department of natural resources. Mm. Um, but, but Weyerhaeuser has allowed us as part of this research to implement some fire on their lands. Um, and, you know, for them, like I said, that represents a, a big liability. So I applaud them for allowing us to do that, to, you know, see what some of these effects are and how they compare and contrast. Right. Awesome. Absolutely. That's great. Yeah, that's great. Uh, I know that uh, I know that you've got some other research from from the wildlife side of things, specifically how how deer are responding to different vegetation types. And I think that would be yep. a great a great uh, discussion to bring into um, that original study that you, that we've been talking about. Yeah, be glad to. Um, if you don't mind, though, there's one other thing I wanted to cover oh, about please, that yes. study. Yeah, let's hear on. it. Yeah. So like I mentioned, we also documented differences in deer use between the tre- different treatments that we implemented. Yep. Um, and I think, you know, this this stat is probably more compelling to hunters than anything else. Um, if you compared the units that we thinned down to 40 and 60 square feet per acre compared to the 80, deer use was two times greater in the 40s and 60s. 
Nice. And if you and if you add fire to that, of course, you know, fire also increased the coverage of select forbs in those stands. Um, so, you know, you've got the forage benefit there as well. We didn't get much into that. But that added another one and a half to two and a half fold increase in deer use of an area. So you've got a two fold increase from thinning from 80 down to at least 60 and then another one and a half to two and a half increase in deer use um when you burn compared to areas that you didn't burn oh man so so it, it was there was there a difference in burn time frame that changed the, the, i guess that you'd see another uh change or was it just application of fire um on those sites yeah we just we burned them all at the same uh time of the year which was okay. it was kind of like that early march period so transitioning yeah. between dormant and early growing is what i would consider it this part of the country so they're all burned on the same time frame, um, and those were the you know use patterns that resulted from that. Regardless, I just I, Adam and I know we say this so much. It's just you got to open up the open up the canopy and then come back with fire. Like that, yeah. that there's just this magic combination yep. that you will get benefit by just doing one. But it's a combo. It's a combo meal. It's not like you're just yep. getting the sandwich at Chick Fil A. You got to get the waffle fries too. And and now your meal is complete. You gotta have both, man. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's I, right. we yeah. say it all the time. Cut or yeah, cut, burn, repeat. Cut, burn, repeat. It's really you know there's a lot of details and a lot of variance in that, but that's pretty simple guidelines and sure. in, in improving habitat is just cut it, burn it, and repeat. And sure. uh, man, I just it's so frustrating sometimes because you hear the research like this where you're like. It's here. All the stuff about true habitat management, habitat restoration, we should be doing it. Why are people not getting on board with this? Why is it still the same old feeders and food plots and mineral? Like, let's yeah. let's make a difference. Yeah, man, I had, you know, speaking of that, the same old feeders and food plots, I had such a refreshing visit with a landowner actually last weekend. And um, a significant portion of the property was, you know, Loblolly Pine stands like the ones we've been talking about in this study. And they were already doing a lot of things right um, in terms of burning those stands. Um, they were a little bit canopy limited. So we talked about thinning them down a little further and, you know, but their food plot program was really limited to hunting plots that were planted in, you know, the typical cereal grain mix during the fall. Yeah. And I mentioned to them the option of creating some relatively, you know, large um, summer nutrition plots in the interior of the property um, but I also, you know, clearly outlined to them what is possible in terms of providing summer deer forage in properly managed, um, upland areas. And they opted, they said, you know, we don't really care to, you know, create these large food plots and, you know, all the expense and everything associated with maintaining them. We just want to manage our uplands, you know, for good summer nutritious, you know, nutrition, uh, through, trying to stimulate these forbs and i was like man that's great i'm totally on board <laughs> I love that. yeah no doubt we'll send him a hat <laughs> yeah and, and not that anything is wrong with you sure. know, planting a growing season food plot like soybeans they're a, an excellent tool but they don't always have to be a part of the plan no that's right yeah so, yeah awesome well that's that's 
quite shocking. It shouldn't. I mean, it's really not shocking, but it just once again reiterates assumptions that we had. And then you put research behind it. And you're like, yes, it makes sense. That's what we've been thinking. Like that's duh. I, yep. I duh. So right. Well, it, it's funny because Adam, we had a discussion last night talking specifically about a site that has had a large canopy reduction and multiple fires. It's like we knew what was going to happen on that site mm-hmm. when it started getting cut. And then the fire came, and there was more thinning. Like, we knew what was going to happen, but still, you can't drive past it and not be amazed at the way creation has just evolved with those disturbances. It's like, yeah. I knew it. I knew right. what was going to happen, but it's still just amazing to see it in person because I know what it was before, and yeah. I know how, how poor of a site it was. But yeah. now it's like, we're talking oh my word. West Slope. Ooh hardwood upland kind of borderline glade ozark mountains terrible closed canopy timber cut it cut it burn it burn it and now there's like chest high green herbaceous plants as thick as you can see and it's just like how did that rocky slope grow that much vegetation right yeah and i mean you know the one You know, I have seen some instances where landowners don't have enough of that, you know, upland cover type that they can manage in that way. Yeah. And I think, you know, for instance, in those in those situations, food plots become a a more valuable tool. Yeah. Or maybe, you know, they have areas of timber that isn't marketable or, you know, they don't for because of species composition or they don't have a mill close by. There's just not a market there. You know, those are situations where, you know incorporating food plots into the plan can be more valuable i think yeah absolutely Mm -hmm. for sure yeah so let's hear about um this other research that you've been conducting um and how that correlates with hopefully uh affecting somebody's hunting strategy (laughs) yeah this is uh quickly evolving into the anti-food plot podcast (laughs) (laughs) if you Um, didn't know yeah you wouldn't take it wouldn't take very long for you to know anything about us to be like these guys have a little bit, and we're we're partnered with a food plot company. I'll just lay that yeah. out there. I do it every week. I love food plots, but doggone it, I hate the emphasis that people put on food plots over habitat management. Sure, the pendulum has swung too far in that direction for a lot of people. I think. Yes, we need, um, to, bring it, we need to bring it right back into balance. That's it. Right. <laughs> so, so keep in mind the study that I'm about to describe. Um, you know, we were we were interested in seeing how deer selected for different cover types on this property in relation to hunting pressure. Um, but keep in mind that, you know, these results are specific to how this property was hunted. Yeah. Um, however, and I'll, and I'll describe that in, in more detail in just a second, but um, I think it's pretty representative of what we see on most properties <laughs> as far as how the hunting pressure was allocated. So it, it, it is pretty broadly applicable, but it doesn't, the the responses that we saw won't apply to a hundred percent of properties out there. So this was a property. Um, we conducted this research on a property in South Carolina. Um, it was a large uh, piece of private land, several thousand acres in size. Um, and Dr. Steve Ditchkoff, who's one of my colleagues here, um, coordinates the Auburn deer lab, uh, was the, the principal investigator on this, but I tagged along to, tease out some of this um this additional analysis from the results that he initially collected so the nuts and bolts are that um we had about 100 deer uh total collared over several year period 
Um, and that was split pretty much down the middle between bucks and does. So about 50 bucks, 50 does. Average age of those deers that we that we captured and tracked with GPS collars um, was about four year olds, four years old for does. So relatively uh, mature does for sure. And then the average age for bucks was about three years old, which is you know pretty high for most studies because um, it's hard to get collars on those older individuals, as any hunter can tell you. Um, so like I said, we wanted to see how they selected for different cover types on the property in response to how the property was hunted. So the main cover types that we had out there were um, natural pine. Um, and a, this was a mixture of loblolly pine and longleaf pine. Um, but the take home message here is that these were these were very open pine stands that had been treated with frequent fire. So we're talking about every one to two years for many, many rotations. So this is, you know, think about these natural pine stands as being your quintessential southern quail woods. Other uh, cover types on the property included on the opposite end of the spectrum, hardwood drains, um, which pretty much received no management. So they were comprised of these um, mature mixed hardwood species assemblages. Um, they represented about 10 percent of the study area. And these areas, because this was a, a coastal plain site in South Carolina, they were really grown up in dense woody vegetation. So don't think like park-like open understory oaks think a tangled mess of you know shrubs and vines yeah exactly so we had hardwood drains um and those those areas received very little hunting pressure and i'll detail all the hunting pressure in a second and then we also had um food plots of course which represented about five to six percent of the property these were mostly small hunting plots planted in a cereal grain mix during the fall and then about 20% of the area was uh, young, unthinned, planted pine. So to determine how the property was hunted, the first thing that we had to do was get an idea of where the stands were placed about the property. So the way the property's hunted is, um, you know, they're all fixed stand locations that hunters are placed in. So we were able to, that makes it pretty easy to quantify where hunters are going because we could just go to each of those stands and then we could look around within a radius of those stands and see, um, you know, during the fall, if I get up in this stand, where could I see a deer? And so you get up there, you look, or a graduate student does. I mean, we we build all this research on the backs of graduate students. They're, they're key to all this all this work. Um, so a graduate student gets up there, they look around, um, they take some readings of the laser rangefinder. And then we can calculate the proportion of the area around a stand comprised of each cover type that you a hunter would actually be able to see and potentially shoot a deer in. Okay. Yeah. So the results from that showed that 23% of the area where you could see and potentially harvest a deer around stands was comprised of food plots. So remember back, you guys remember what proportion of the property I said was food plots? Yes. It was about five, yeah, it was about five, five to six percent. Yep. But you know, it, they were represented at twenty three percent in the area around hunting stands. Mm-hmm. Then you go down to hardwood drains. You know, they represented ten percent of the study area, um, but only about four percent of the area that a hunter could see a deer in. Um, and then planted pine um, represented about thirteen percent of the area that a deer was viewable in around stands compared to its uh, coverage of about 20% of the study area. So the take home here is that 
the areas around stands were much more likely to be comprised of food plots um, than their availability on the landscape. And then the opposite was true for hardwood drains and planted pines. You couldn't see a deer there and areas around stands typically weren't comprised of those cover types. So they were receiving less pressure. Sure. Which, which I think is what you mentioned earlier, how many recreational properties are hunted. That's a, that's a common strategy that anybody I think would can easily agree on that most, most properties are hunted in that manner. Right. Absolutely. So now, um, now that we got that out of the way, we can get a little bit into the results. Um, so not surprisingly, deer selected both sexes, bucks and does, selected mostly for food plots at night. Um, so, you know, the greatest probability, of, and, that, and that's how we calculate deer, deer use of these areas, is probability of selection. And so the greatest probability of selection for food plots for both bucks and does was at night. So, for instance, um, and bucks had this had a little bit stronger trend in this direction. So during the day, um, there was a 80% chance that a buck was going to select to spend his time in a hardwood drain, and the probability that he was going to select to use a food plot during hunting hours was less than 40%. You know, relatively low. So, and, but, uh, I guess that that. That eighty percent selection was in ten percent composition of the entire property. That's so they're a, heavily, heavily yes. relating to that dense cover that no one was entering. Absolutely. Strongly. I mean, that's 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 honestly ridiculous in my opinion. That heavy skewed eighty percent probability find in ten percent of the property. Exactly. That's, that, that's a. I mean, if you could hunt that, that's a. That's putting the numbers in your favor. When he's right. he's there, and it's a defined area, like right. a, a, as far as a smaller scale. Now it's long and drawn out. Um, yeah, and your guess is as as good as anybody's in which part of that long drawn out system that he's in. But still, right. yeah. But think, a, but think about that as a corridor. Uh, you know, you might not encounter one buck, but you could encounter as a long, skinny corridor if. If again, eighty percent of their movement is there, you might mm-hmm. not encounter just one deer, but multiple deer as they're moving in and out of or up and down that corridor. That's right. And to me, it's just like, <laughs> why hunt anywhere else if you're trying to kill a deer buck <laughs> during daylight hours, right? Right. Well, the, yeah. And the other thing that the I'm thinking about too is the food plot standpoint of going. What was it? Forty percent uh, probability that they would be yeah, there less, during daylight. Less than. Less uh-huh. than forty percent. And that's just him being there during daylight. That's not accounting for if the hunter has the time to actually select that food plot or has the time to right. get there to hunt, correct? Right. That's right. Yeah. So if you weed out the time of the correct wind and having the availability, the chances of being go. on that food plot with the deer in that food plot is pretty slim. Right. 100% agree. Yeah, and... Um, you know, one one thing that I do want to address is you have to remember that this isn't necessarily saying 80 percent of their locations during the day were in a food plot or I mean, I'm yes. sorry, in a hardwood drain and 40 percent were in a, a food plot. It doesn't work out that way. Obviously, that adds up to more than 100 percent. I'm better at math than that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so these are you know, these are independent probabilities. Um, and you also have to, another thing you have to keep in mind is that. um when it comes to the 
when it comes to hunting, like we were, were talking about the hardwood drains, we also calculated movement rates for these deer during these different periods and in these different cover types. And when bucks were in the hardwood drains, their movement rates were much lower. So probably, you know, a lot of the times they're bedding in there, um, but they're going to move around too. And it's just that they're in that greater security cover. They know that it has less hunting pressure. And so they're not, I mean, you guys have seen it as much as I have. When a buck comes out in a food plot, they don't usually stick around for a long time. You know, maybe if you're in a big soybean field, you know, during late summer, they'll be out there in a bachelor group or something like that. But if you're talking about November, they're going to come out there usually and check that food plot for does, maybe grab a couple bites to eat and they're gone. Yeah. So the movement rates, you know, were lower when they were in those drains. If they were moving Um, in those drains, it was more of like a loafing movement where it's just kind of like super comfortable. Matt, I think of the buck, the sticker eight I shot on the family farm in that bedding thicket or heavy TSI area where it took him forever when he stood up from his bed, which was on the other side of the little half acre cut. And he moved to within 40 yards when I shot him. I don't know how long it took him, but it was like slow motion. Will just like he was the most comfortable it was it was like the first time i've got to see a nice buck feel 100 percent comfortable like he's got no care in the world and he moved yeah. so slow yeah. right well, yeah and i mean we're, we're, this would be an, a speculation or a potential assumption but i but i think i'm considering um with that vegetation type of the dense hardwoods with it only comprising 10 percent of the whole property and potentially in a more linear type fashion. Imagine if there were, it was a higher, that, that type of vegetation or that type of secure cover comprised mm-hmm. more of a composition across the whole property. Yeah. I would speculate that there might be more movement in those areas that if they're not in this long linear form and they're comprised more on the property themselves too yeah yeah so there's still is a spatial distribution of bucks on a landscape as as well so like you know considering all that i i again i'm just speculating that you would you would find more movement in those areas during daylight hours if they were shaped differently or spread or comprised more of the area yeah right yeah with that what, well, there's a couple things to consider here. Um, and one, and we'll, I'll mention this and then, then I'll mention another and we'll circle back to the first. Um, one is that we have to keep in mind that deer probably weren't just selecting for these areas because they offered visual cover, but also because they weren't hunted. Uh-huh. Yep. And so, and so, you know, it may be that if these, if you did start to go in and hunt these areas, that selection for them wouldn't be as strong. So there's both a, a sanctuary effect here and a cover component to it. So that's important to keep in mind. Yep. Totally. Yep. You and, have security and cover. A lot of times right. you can have cover, but not security and it's not as great, or you can have security and the cover's not even that great, but deer are still in there because right. it's secure. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but, but to support you guys points, Um, you wouldn't necessarily have to go out and replicate hardwood drain to create more of these areas that are, that are highly selected for by bucks during the day, because we saw the same general pattern 
to a lesser degree, but the same pattern was there with the young planted pine. Mm. You know, these were areas that weren't hunted as much, and they were areas that offered, again, a lot of visual obstruction cover, in other words, and bucks also preferred those areas disproportionate to their availability across the property during the daytime as well. Yeah. Mm. Wonderful. Uh, uh, how big were those areas? The planted pines? Yes, sir. I would say on average, um, I, I didn't calculate it directly, but just, you know, from my familiarity with the aerial photos, I mean, we're talking about relatively small patches of, you know, 10, 15 acres in size. Yeah. And, and and I think of like that's pretty common that we see in the southeast. I think of you know clear cuts and then that new young planted pines. Everybody knows mm-hmm. how much deer like those, but a lot of yeah. times they don't select them because I can't see, I can't shoot into it. Um, yep. And you know you, why do I want to sit here when I can't see very far? Well, I right. look at the numbers. And I'm like, well, you're not see very far, but at least you got a better chance of killing them. Um, right, and, and you got an encounter of the kill them. Yeah. Yes. Where they're at. And if it's and go ahead. Of course, another way we can we can take advantage of these data is that we know where the bucks are during the day, and we know where they're going at night because the the um, the flip side of this is that we saw ninety percent probability of selection for food plots by bucks at night. Yeah. And so we know they're moving from those hard drains to those food plots, and they're moving slowly between them and waiting for nightfall. So where do you put your stand? Mm-hmm. That's right. Between, yeah. between yeah. those two resources. Hopefully you can find um, a bottleneck in between. And sure, sure. Easy and, peasy. and two, and you know, on the, on the flip side, when you're hunting in the morning, you can try to catch them coming from those food plots back to the areas of high cover or refuge. That's, That's right. right. So you keep, you keep the areas secure so there's so there's some consistency on on a known bedding location. Right. You're just in that transitional zone between the two, where there's still a high probability sure. based on the consistency, but also based on the time frame of movement from one known location from point A to point B. Right. Based on research. Yeah. yeah. And I've even seen I've even seen some folks um, specifically create you know, little stopover areas in those, uh, those perennial transition zones, you know, maybe like a little small food plot, but it doesn't have to be a food plot as we've talked about several (laughs) times. Like, you know, maybe, maybe you create a little, you know, one acre patch clear cut and you manage that area specifically for high quality forage. And, you know, you treat that as a kill plot, like an intercept location between the primary nutrition plot and the primary area of bedding cover. And you put a little water um, hole in it, like dig out with a skid steer or something, dig a little water hole in there so they can get a quick drink as they're going by. like sure. uh, Or even a mock scrape. Like you can do all kinds yeah. of things right there and catch them in between. One thing that I thought of was, let's just say you had that 15-acre pine, young pines. Anybody who's hunted a, a crop field that's at least 15 acres knows that if you're not – carrying a big old rifle it's kind of hard to kill them if they're on the other side of that 15 acre section and so and it's they like always are. <laughs> if you if they always are so if you can figure out to to what matt and i do is so okay this is the habitat features that i'm looking for that dense cover lots of lots of woody structure down four foot and under and put it in a two acres or less you can start mm-hmm. defining these areas and hunting them a lot better than a 15 right. acre but that doesn't happen on every property and, and right. hunting them with the, with the appropriate wind so that you're coming in 
with a clean access and you're blowing your wind in the opposite direction of the bedding location. So you retain that secure aspect, but you're still where you need to be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's key, man. I love that. Yeah, I love yeah. this, but I know there's more, there's more. So keep going. Yeah. But wait, there's more. Um, <laughs> and you guys talking about, you know, that buck that was so comfortable, um, that you could observe, you know, being relatively undisturbed moving along. Um, you know, it, it reminded me that I actually have some data here associated with this study on movement rates. And we see, um, I felt like people, you guys and probably your listeners would eat this up because it's kind of one of those things that's always in a, in a hunter's mind is how much they move and how fast are they moving on average when they're in those areas of, um, you know, where they feel secure, less pressure, they have cover. They're only moving when they're up on their feet about a hundred yards an hour. So, you know, just picking along cruising. Um, but in contrast to that, you know, when they're up in these open cover types, so like these frequently burned, um, open pines or the food plots, especially the food plots are where we saw the greatest movement rates. You're talking about, they're going up to like 400, 500 yards an hour. Wow. Four, four to five times the rate of speed moving right. from one to the other. Right. It's, it's like, it's like, they know where they feel comfortable and they just want to get back there. And then yeah. at that point, they're going to calm back down. They're going to be like, to me, just like the daylight activity, although they're not covering large distances, yeah, they're still on their feet. They're, yeah. they're just in cover and they're just taking it slow and yeah. they know that they're safe. It's, and they're that, right. it's where I use that term, route. make your property sticky. Where when you have those dense covers, the cover pockets scattered out, and deer are stuck to them, and they move slowly out of them. Now, based on research, Matt, we can we can say yes. that we know from research <laughs> that this is that this is a pretty common thing. That, that not only is it making your hunting strategy better, but if you're trying to grow an older age class bucks, there's a less probability of them shooting over at four to five hundred yards per hour over onto the neighbor and getting killed you can hopefully hold them on your place longer so during daylight when they're bedded down they're on you and then as it gets closer to or i guess when they're coming back in the morning they're getting closer to that so there's less likely of a chance that they're going to be on the neighbor during daylight than than on your place that's my assumption yeah, that, make, that makes sense to me and you know i think that I think that a lot of times hunters are drawn to a, a black and white answer. And there's plenty of people out there in the hunting industry that are willing to give it to you. That's, <laughs> but yeah. that's why was, was that too preachy? No, <laughs> but, no. We did not pay him why, to say that. That was the heat we were looking for. <laughs> but that's why, um, you know, we talk a lot in terms of odds and probabilities because two buck, you know, two different bucks may do completely opposite things in response to the same external factors. That's sure. right. Yeah. Sure. So, yep. you know, when we're talking 80%, 90%, 40% selection for this and that and the other is because some do it and some don't. Yeah. And yep. so I think that, you know, considering like everything we've talked about, you know, you're talking about habitat management, you're talking about movements, talking about hunting pressure, where to hunt, all that kind of thing the best thing that you can do is try to know as much as you can about each of those aspects and the probabilities and the ranges associated with them. And then just try to find that, you know, that point in the Venn diagram where all those probabilities are the greatest where they overlap. And that's the best you can do as a manager and a hunter. Oh, um, just try to, ma- 
That's, maximize those probabilities. Uh, uh, amen on that one. Amen. That's I it. I wish it were. I wish it were more black and white, though. Um, <laughs> We'd but, kill them yeah. all if that was the case. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. We've been, we've been I, crushing the structure. I know that. You and I personally, maybe not. You know, all three of us <laughs> probably not go kill every one of them. But you know, there's some no. redneck somewhere that'd be like. I know this Yee-yee. now. I'm getting revenge, and he'd hunt it oh, down yeah. every last one of them. <laughs> Wait, how many tags do I have again? <laughs> that doesn't matter. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there was one more aspect to this study um, that I kind of wanted to get into that's it's kind of more of a – I mean, it does have some hunting application, but to me it's just kind of nerding out a little bit on this because I think it's cool to also you know talk about the biology of these animals and, and what drives them to do what they do. Um, but you know, when we turn, when we looked over at the doe data, we saw that same general pattern that they were more likely to use a food plot at night and they were more likely to use a hardwood drain during the day, but it wasn't nearly, um, as stark a contrast as it was for bucks. And this was something that was really interesting to me and kind of prompt is what prompted me to look at the data like this in the first place, because I had always assumed, you know, everybody talks about how how hard it is to kill old bucks, right? And, you know, I, I had a lot of these conversations around the campfire where I would say, well, I don't think you're giving does enough credit. You know, if you took a four and a half year old doe and she had some unique feature on her body that made her easily identifiable and you tried to hunt that deer, it'd probably be just as hard as it would to hunt that four and a half year old buck. But that doesn't really turn out to be the case based on these data because, you know, we saw that females were much more likely to use food plots during the day, even when you adjusted for age. So these older does are still using food plots to a great to a, a greater extent than bucks during the daytime. And like I said, you know, this probably relates back to the to the needs and the biology of the animal. Um, you know, does are smaller, so they have smaller rumens that's, that they store their food in. Um, so that means their food passes through their digestive tract more rapidly. And that means that they have to have a higher quality diet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and this is why we see a lot of times, you know, sexual segregation between bucks and those, particularly during the summertime, because, you know, bucks are able to take advantage of lower quality. Now, this doesn't mean that it's OK to have low quality forage for bucks, but they can get more nutrition out of browse than a doe can. Whereas, sure. you know, a doe, a doe may require a greater composition of forbs or, or greater ratio of forbs to browse in their diet because they are Lots smaller. They need those higher quality diets. And on top of that, they're doing what else? Lactating. Exactly. Yeah. The most expensive, you know, the most expensive uh, metabolic process in mammals, lactating. Yeah. Um, so all that adds up to <clears throat> their biology and their success from a reproductive standpoint in nursing and successfully raising those fawns pushes them in my mind. Um, and this is, I'm getting a little bit out into, you know, interpretation. We don't necessarily have hard data on this, but it all adds up to make a lot of logical sense. It pushes them to have to go out and expose themselves to greater risk in those food plots to obtain those higher quality resources. Yeah. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. And you know, one thing, you know, a lot of times you hear the analogy or the, the idea that, Bucks and does are separated during the summer because they just don't like each other. Bucks are more, it could be some of that, but it's also probably a lot of what you're saying. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's related um, to, to, to the best of our knowledge. You know, it's related on different dietary requirements. Yeah. Um, and then also it's related to differences in predation risk. So, you know, we we're talking we've talked so far about, you know, the predation risk that these deer were primarily responding to was hunters. Um, we don't think of ourselves as predators, but deer respond behaviorally very similarly to us than they do animal predators. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the summer, you know, deer are primarily avoiding predation risk from animal predators. And a lot of the whitetails range that, you know, boils down to coyotes. And so they're um, choosing, you know, where they, where they, um, the areas they utilize during summer based on both their foraging requirements and the predation risk. Um, and that probably, and that differs between bucks and does. So naturally it differ the areas that they use are going to be a little bit different. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. I mean, it, it, just, just the, that trade off um, of, of trying to rear young successfully. Uh, I, that's why I think that is a big driver for the separation between, between the two. They're just doing things so differently on just a, the daily requirements of foraging, but just their behavior, what they're, what they're doing. Yeah. Um, and, and I mean, I know a lot of this is, a lot of this is baked in, if you will, <laughs> to these sure. animals and they're not, they're not making active decisions about it. Yeah. But at the same time, it's a little bit easy for me to, you know, out of the respect that I give the animal um, as a hunter and as a researcher, you know, just spending time like as much of my life as I've devoted to studying these animals, it gives me respect for them to know that, you know, does are potentially sacrificing themselves to make sure that they get enough nutrition to, to fulfill um, their fawns needs and to make sure that their fawns are also getting adequate nutrition. Um, and I mean, you guys have seen it too. A lot of times when a doe steps out into a food plot, when it's still shooting hours, when it's still shooting light, you can almost just read her body language about how nervous she is. Even if it's a food plot that doesn't get hunted that hard. Oh, she, she's exposed and she knows that her head's on a swivel. Those ears are, are upright and just, she is searching hardcore for any detection of danger, her nose yeah. is always going. She just throws her head up and just yeah. either looks or or that nose is upright, licking her nose, keeping it moist. Like you just know that she's uncomfortable. Yeah. She's yeah. got the same so look people. on her face that those monkeys in India on National Geographic that run out in the street <laughs> to grab the food have. Yeah, like, <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, 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 it's that's why I think so many people like in a food plot situation. They're like, oh, you know, does are jumping the string. It's like they are they are on high alert right now. They're not wanting to be there, but they just yeah from a, from a that behavioral food driving standpoint, they have to. That's the highest yeah. quality food available in most. Right. It's not that they don't know it's risky. They know it is. They just yes. know they have to have it. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Uh, it's it's fascinating and and you know when you when you go further into the fall time frame that later october november you know their bodies are now doing they're not as they're not as devoted to caring for young anymore they're mm-hmm. devoted to preparation for this whole cycle to begin again that's preparation right for fall for 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 winter uh food resources trying to pack it in because at that point during winter they're not only trying to survive winter and it may not be as important in the South. However, there's still less food on the landscape, tougher condition, more extremes, but mm-hmm. then also they're, they're carrying young through that whole time frame. 
That's right. It's, it's just so much more, I guess, drive. It's a and gauntlet. It is, it is, yeah, it really is a gauntlet. There's just year after year, that is what they do. Right. And it's cool to see that, I think, from the hunting standpoint. This is why I think just creation and, and, and the, the plant vegetation, manipulating that and how deer respond to it is fascinating. But that's what drives everyone, I think, out to the woods. And there's just so much of these complexities and connections that we can make and that your guys' research is, is supporting what people see. That's right. just fascinating. Even though they may not be aware of that they're seeing. Oh, but absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. They don't yeah. even know, but yeah. now it's making so much sense that the, the dots are being connected as we're talking and you guys are and, and you know, you're sharing and revealing this. It's like, Oh yeah, I get it. Like, yeah. duh, that's what I see. Holy yeah. cow. Right. It's so much more complex than I ever gave, you know, credit to that animal. Yeah. And I just think it makes hunting that much more of an enjoyable experience when, you know, you observe, a buck or a doe out there, you know, young, old, or in between. And you understand some of this and you understand how complex everything is and what drove the choices up to this moment where you're observing this deer in this particular location, doing what it is doing. Yes. I don't know. I just think it's cool. Yeah, it's absolutely. It's amazing is what it is. It's yeah. amazing. Yeah. I uh, mean, I, and I just love hearing this research because Matt and I wouldn't be where we're at today with our job if there weren't guys like you doing the research, publishing that research, and allowing guys like us to take it and go, oh, this is how we apply this and, and make a difference on the landscape. So thanks to you guys, and uh, once again, thanks for coming on the podcast to share this information with us. Absolutely. I greatly enjoyed the opportunity, and, uh, you know, that's that's my goal is to get that information out there to you guys that are making the difference on the landscape. Awesome. Absolutely. How can people find you because you make great social media posts? Are you on Instagram and Facebook? Yeah. Yeah, the best the best place to follow me just cuz um you know my Facebook is still set up as a, you know like a individual profile. Yep. Um so if you want to circumvent that, you can find me there just look up my name um and then you know if I see deer and turkey hunting photos <laughs> on your page i know you're probably <laughs> legitimate and i'll add you on yeah um but probably the easiest place to follow me because it's a public page is on instagram yep and uh, my handle there is dr as in doctor um underscore will underscore goolsby and that's g-u-l-s-b-y there you go awesome. guys i hope awesome. you go and follow him and uh, see some of this great research and uh man we appreciate you coming on Thank you again. Uh, we're going to have to have you come back on so we can talk the Wiley Coyote. <laughs> <laughs> I have a thought or two about him. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're, we'll definitely have you back on for that. You, you killed it today on on uh, sharing good quality information, but but doing so in a manner that is understandable and, and applicable to everyone out there, whether they're hunting, managing a property. So we appreciate your time and your devotion to gaining more knowledge of these awesome, awesome resources that we like to pursue. So appreciate your time and, and we'll have you back on here shortly. Sounds good. I appreciate it uh, from you guys as well, Adam and Matt. Yep.